prayed this week that uh, God would really speak to us from this passage because I think so much is at stake, especially in terms of our testimony to the world around us uh, with what Paul uh, puts out for us here. You and I know that the, the gospel, the good news, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the power of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. It's the source of God's life in us. And so uh, this year, uh, as a church, we are making an effort to reorient our lives around a gospel-centric understanding of life. And uh, we've already seen from the first few chapters in the book of Romans uh, that when it comes to actually relating to God, uh, things are measured more by God's holiness than by our happiness. Things are measured in our relationship with God more by God's holiness than by our happiness. In fact, God's wrath, the Bible says in these first few chapters of Romans, is being revealed against the unrighteousness or the unholiness uh, that marks uh, the lives of the people in the world in which we live. And so in Romans, we're urged, if I could say so, to um, get the focus of our relationship with God off of our own lives off of our own desires, our own needs, our own feelings, our own experiences, and onto Christ and his needs and his feelings and his experiences and his work and his desires, which is the source of this gospel-centric life. And when we center there, when we focus there, when we live from that place, there's an entirely different life that comes to us. So much of our focus, it seems to me, seems to be on what's going on inside of me and uh, what's going on in my personal experience rather than noticing what's going on with God in the biblical drama that's revealed from Genesis to Revelation and its main character, Jesus, its lead character. Now, I know that everybody has problems. Um, you might not have the Terrell's problem, but I'm sure you have problems of your own. Um, I was moved to tears last week in our Easter service as the cardboard testimonies revealed the problems that people have lived with. And they come in all shapes and sizes, all different varieties. And I know there are some Christians, especially some TV preachers, who tell us that if we have faith in Jesus, we are exempt from all problems and troubles in this life. And I would tell you, it's just not true. Jesus said, John chapter 16, in this life, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. That's what Jesus said. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. Trouble usually finds its way into our lives by surprise. It's usually uninvited. It's usually unexpected. And I want to suggest that when our problems are substantial enough in our own view... They tend to preoccupy us to the point that our problems obscure our perspective. Or in the words of one author, our problems can actually steal away from us the very thing we need to see our way through them, namely our perspective or our faith. And we can actually get to the point where we reorient ourselves around a problem-centric perspective instead of a gospel-centric life. We become so problem-focused that it sort of takes over, takes on a life of its own, and takes over our lives. Now, the Apostle Paul, you know, was somebody who had a lot of problems. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks personally uh, about some of the problems he had. And it, it's a great passage to understand how Paul, in the midst of his problems, maintained a gospel-centric perspective. Let me just read a couple of verses here, starting in verse 6. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the source of our life, that God has come and taken up residence in our hearts. But, he says in verse 7, we have this great treasure, this life of God, in jars of clay, in our human bodies, jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. And then skip on down to verse 16. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. We might lose a lot of things, but we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day by day. For our light and momentary trouble are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul maintaining perspective, maintaining his faith in the midst of the problems that he faces. And so while Paul has these huge problems, his gospel-centric uh, preoccupation was with the gospel, and so his problems were down to size. It's not that Paul denied his problems, but it's not that he dwelled on his problems either. He dwelled on his relationship with God. Verse 17 there, it says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Paul realized that God had a purpose for his life. And that verse 11 is a troubling passage, and I know that many people you know, uh, really stumble over that. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Seems like God is always lopping away at our old life in order that more of his new life might be revealed through our mortal bodies. God has a purpose for our life, and God is willing to use problems and troubles and suffering to achieve his purpose. And his purpose is for the life of Christ to be revealed in us. Leon quoted Romans 8, 28. You know, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The next verse, verse 29, explains what God's purpose is. God says all of his thoughts, all of his efforts, all of his uh, actions on our behalf are designed to conform us to the likeness of Christ. His thinking about us ahead of time, his sending Christ into the world, his writing the scriptures, all are designed to conform us to the likeness of Christ, so that the life of Christ might be revealed. 
and God might be glorified even through us. And so it's our attitudes and our choices and our words and our actions. It's not that we have a purpose for God in our life. This is what we think God should do for us. It's that God has a purpose for our life in him. And God has designed and called us to himself in order that we might fulfill this purpose for which we were created. But I wonder sometimes, is God's purpose our top concern? Or do we get that kind of reversed and think that God exists, you know, to somehow fulfill our purpose in life? And so in Romans chapter 5, our text for this morning, um, once we've been justified, once you become a Christian, once you've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we start to live in a whole new place. We start to live in an entirely new place once we uh, accept the gift that God has given to us, and that place is we're at peace with God. You know, the whole first few chapters here is that God's wrath is being revealed against all the evil in the world. And once we come to Christ and are justified, God's anger turns into God's smile, and we begin to live in a whole new place. We begin to live in the favor of God. Verse five, chapter 5, verse 1 says, says it like this. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We're at peace. It's a whole different place in which we are enabled to live. And uh, we have access to his life. We've been ushered into a place where we can now do life with God, with his smile upon us. And so... We need to be careful, however, that this new place that God ushers us into does not mean that God now exists to please us or that God is now in a place where we can manipulate him into doing what we want him to do instead of understanding that we exist in order for him to accomplish his purposes. Christianity is not, you know, really about a makeover. It's really about death and resurrection to a whole new life. And it's this peace with God uh, that enables us to begin to live this new life. It's not about improving our old life. It's about ending our old life and our old ways and taking up this whole new life that God is giving us in a new place. I'm finally out from underneath the anger and the wrath of God, which I deserve, and I'm now living in a place with this radical, amazing grace that God has extended into my life through what he's done in Christ. And that's why I think in Romans here, uh, Paul continues to go after our lame, you know, religion or our lame morality or our lame, you know, good deeds as they still form part of the old story of the way that we used to live and replaces it with this living in a new place, this uh, new place of living, this gospel-centric kind of place of living. But I would suggest to you that the old me-centric story dies hard. Uh, George Barna, whom I think many of you might know, is uh, kind of a um, statistician. He uh, writes lots of books, and his, he basically analyzes uh, what's happening in Christianity, especially here in America. And uh, I just wanted to uh, tell you his kind of conclusion as a result of some studies that he's been doing. It says this, based on numerous studies conducted by his research group, George Barna concludes... To increasing millions of Americans, God, if we even believe in a supernatural deity, exists for the pleasure of humankind. 
He resides in the heavenly realm solely for our utility and benefit. This is the majority of American Christians in response to his polls. After citing a series of reports, Barna concludes, in short, the spirituality of America is Christian in name only. We desire experience more than knowledge. We prefer choices to absolutes. We embrace preferences rather than truths. We seek comfort rather than growth. Faith must come on our terms or we reject it. We have enthroned ourselves as the final arbiters of righteousness, the ultimate rulers of our own experience and destiny. We are the Pharisees of the new millennium. Most Americans are relying on their own good deeds, their own good character, or the generosity of God apart from Christ. The generosity of God, that God is a grandfather who is just tender and loving and, you know, apart from Christ. That's his assessment of Christianity in its contemporary form. But the Bible, you know, speaks entirely different. The Bible talks about the fact that we've been called uh, to die. Um, Colossians, Paul puts it like this, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. You've died to that old life. We Baptists understand this. We go under the water dying to that old life, that old religion, that old morality, that whole old story. And we are now, our lives are hidden in Christ. One of Paul's favorite um, ways of describing a Christian is that our life is in Christ. He says it all the time, in Christ, in Christ. And uh, he says here, for you died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. There will be a time for glory. There will be a time when it's our day. When Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Therefore, Paul says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil sins, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in those ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our Creator. The new self, which is in the process of being renewed, you know, um, and being taught through the knowledge that we have about God through his own self-revelation. And so in Romans chapter 5, you know, Paul says that once we've been justified, he says, um, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice, we're excited, we're happy in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the future. I don't know about you, but I teared up when I heard Leon talk about someday Naomi and I are going to be in heaven together. We rejoice in that. That's, that's our hope, and it's given to us on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. And it's secure, and it's, it's better than life, as we say. It really is. Okay, so we rejoice in what God has promised us is coming in the future. However, look at the next line here. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings in the present. Rejoice in the future. It's going to be great. Not only so, and this is where it begins to be a challenge, 
but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know. This is what we know. This is what we learned. Like Lorna said, this is what I've learned along the way. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope based on the love which was demonstrated for us on the cross of Calvary. We know that suffering grows our faith. And our faith is more precious to us than gold, and so forth. And so this is a challenge, I think. When you rejoice in your suffering, I think you've crossed a line. I think you've crossed a maturing line in your life. When you can rejoice in your suffering... We do a lot of complaining about our suffering. Very seldom have we gotten a connection card that says, I am so happy I have this terrible suffering coming into my life this week. And I'm so excited about it. What God's going to teach me through it. How God's going to grow me about it. Very seldom do we talk like that. This is a challenge. I think when we can get to the place where we actually rejoice in our suffering, we sort of crossed a line. When you can rejoice in your suffering, you realize that the gospel has gone so deep into your identity so deep into your life that there's way more to you than what's going on on the surface. There is something very real, very eternal that's going on inside of your life. And one of the ways you can know that is when you're confronted with this reality of suffering and you can rejoice in it. And I say to you, it's supernatural. It's not natural, as the Terrell shared with us. It's supernatural. God's spirit is overriding our spirit and actually turning our suffering into an eternal benefit. And when you know that's what's going on, you're excited about it. You're happy about it. You're rejoicing. God is getting me ready to live in heaven. God is getting rid of more of my old story and replacing it with more of this new story, this gospel-centric kind of life. And I would say coming to this point in your life where you know that the trials and the trouble and the suffering hold potential for growth and for eternal benefit, for deeper faith, when you know that God is in control so that God's suffering is meant for our good and the trials that he intends, you know, uh, are for good. You might uh, remember the book of Job in the Old Testament. In the book of Job, there are a number of things that are pretty evident, but one thing is this, that Satan, our enemy, intends to use our suffering and trials to get us to reject our faith, to get us to give up on God, to get us to lose perspective. Uh, Satan wants our suffering to get us to curse God and to be done with our faith. Satan goes to God in that uh, book of the Bible, which is perhaps the oldest book in, in the Bible and speaks about the most basic truth to humankind, goes to God and says to God, listen, the only reason that Job fears you and that Job lives the way he does is because you bless him. Satan says to God, Job doesn't love you. He's just into you for what he can get. He just loves your blessings. And Job was a very blessed person. And so God gives permission, as you know the story, to uh, take away Job's blessings. Uh, One minute, you know, Job's oxen are plowing the fields, his donkeys are grazing, his kids are all together in a house eating and drinking, his sheep are grazing out in the field. Next minute, the Sabians come out of the desert. They rob his cattle, kill his servants, 
And before Job can even process what just happened, uh, another messenger comes and says, hey, lightning fell and created this huge fire and all of your sheep and all of those servants, the shepherds who are watching the sheep, they're all gone. And while that guy's still speaking, the next messenger comes and says, hey, the Chaldeans came three raids out of the desert. They stole all your camels. And while that guy was still talking, you know, the fourth messenger comes and says, sorry to tell you this, but there was a huge wind, like a tornado, that blew up in the desert, blew the house down, and all your kids are dead. That's Job's story. That's, that's a really bad day. You know what Job says? At the end of that day, it's recorded in the Bible. Here's what Job says. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So Satan says, well, that's just because you haven't touched his body. Let's ratchet it up. And so Satan is given permission to uh, afflict Job's body, and he gets sick, destroys his health, and so forth. You know what Job says? Shall we accept good from God and not bad? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? You see, Satan means trouble to bring and suffering to bring evil, but God means suffering for good. Now, in Romans chapter 5, I want to suggest to you the good that God intends suffering to bring. Suffering produces perseverance. That's what the Bible is saying. You don't really have an opportunity to persevere in your faith until you're in the face of trouble. Everything's going fine. God is good. Coming to worship. We're all just doing just ducky. And then all of a sudden you have a Job-like day. And this unwanted, unexpected, uninvited suffering comes into your life. Now you have to decide what are you going to do. What are you going to do? And the Bible says perseverance is the right response. Stability, perseverance. It means the ability to hold up. I, uh, when, when the Terrells were beginning to deal with their problem, they gave me a shirt, and I was going to try to wear this. If I have a better physique, I might have uh, put it on and done a Superman kind of thing, but I decided not to <laughs> for your benefit. <laughs> hey, perseverance. But look, what is Perseverance. Okay, be determined, be stubborn, endure, hang on, hold fast, keep at it, stick to it, pursue, persist, press on, get it done. Perseverance. Perseverance. God says that suffering is an opportunity for you and I to begin to persevere, to begin to persevere. And at perseverance, um, there's no opportunity for perseverance without suffering and trouble. You think about it. No opportunity to kind of establish your faith, grow your faith, hang in there when everything's going fine. And so suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance goes to character. It's when you persevere that your character is changed. More of your old story is gone, and more of the new story of this gospel-centric life begins to come. And it's an issue of character. The word for character uh, is the idea of uh, refining, uh, like it comes from refining metals. It's burning away the dross. The intent is to reproduce the character of Christ in us. So problems give us the opportunity to persevere, 
Perseverance will change us. It will develop our character. We'll begin to be different people than we were before the suffering came our way. And uh, it's designed to give us the character of Christ, to put our hope in God who does not disappoint. Character goes to hope. And hope never disappoints us uh, because hope is based in God's love, as Paul says here. You know, uh, verse 5, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And you remember in verse 8, if you, if you want to know about God's love, God demonstrates in the current day his love through the cross. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. If you doubt God's love, go to the cross. Don't base God's love on your circumstances. It's a mistake a lot of people make. Oh, you know, if God loves me, he'd never let this happen to me. What if God's simply trying to grow you? What if God has a purpose for your life and through suffering, he's creating perseverance and perseverance is changing your character and character is building up hope, which is rooted in his love for you and it changes you. And you're able to live a gospel-centric life to the glory of God and for the witness of the people around us. When you know that God loves you and you know it by focusing on the cross, then and, and when circumstances produce suffering, you know that God means it for good in spite of how it looks, in spite of how it feels, in spite of how it doesn't make any sense, and then your hope is grown. Uh, and if God did all this, you know, on the cross while we were his enemies, remember Paul's argument, how much more will God love you now that you're justified? Now that you're on God's side, now that his wrath is turned away and his smile is on your life, how much more does God love you than when you were his enemy? And so when these trials, when these sufferings, when these things come into our lives, we can have the confidence and our hope rises and our character changes. Uh, the gospel changes everything. Our focus has to be outside of ourselves and onto the person of Christ. Uh, the apostle Peter, it seems to me, says exactly the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now... For a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even when it's refined by fire, so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy even in the midst of the suffering and the trials and the griefs that come our way. And it's in this way that God shows the world that this, what we have, is from God, not from ourselves. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And it draws people to the presence of God in our own lives. Uh, when I was a kid... Uh, People used to read this in James, and I used to think, I cannot understand. It doesn't make any sense to me. 
In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, uh, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials. I, I can remember as a kid thinking, James has got to be a lunatic. That makes no sense at all. Consider it pure joy when you get an opportunity to get bashed. Consider it pure joy, James says, whenever you face trials of all different kinds because you know that the testing of your faith. What are these trials? What is this suffering? It's the testing of our faith, James says. And the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. James sees trials as a test. And uh, when I begin to think about uh, these, uh, these tests that come our way and this issue of perseverance, I realize that perseverance is the opposite of cop-outs. Perseverance, the opposite of cop-out, right? That's why God hates cop-outs. Perseverance is the opposite of drinking. Perseverance is the opposite of shopping sprees. Perseverance is the opposite of sexual fantasizing, right? Perseverance is trusting God in the midst of all this. It's the opposite of binge eating, Perseverance is doing the right thing with God's help in the midst of trials so that God can bring glory to himself through us. It's dying to ourselves in order that Christ might rise and that his life might shine through our human bodies. And I don't always believe that people struggling with addictions and obsessions and so forth, do you understand that it's the increase of your faith that is the antidote. I'm so thankful for one of our ministries here at church, Higher Ground, which is Christ-centered. It's one thing to, you know, go to AA and to get off of drinking, but it's another thing, yeah, to get off of that. But what about getting on to something better? What about finding a resource in God, gospel-centric living that gives me this life that enables me to overcome and to persevere? in the midst of the suffering and trials that life will inevitably uh, bring to us. And so James says, you know, if you're a believer and you've been justified by faith, God is trying to help grow that faith even through our suffering and pain. And again, he's saying the same thing. Perseverance produces maturity. And maturity makes us complete. The word for complete is an interesting word in the Greek language. It's tilios. And uh, it means to reach the purpose for which we were created. A man is the tilios of a boy. Uh, an oak tree is the tilios of an acorn. It's the completion. It's God's idea of something that starts one place and is going to be completed through life. So I would suggest that God has a completion for each one of us. That we all started out with whatever problems, issues, parents, wherever we grew up and all of that, and through all of our experience, God is seeking to complete us. He has an idea of what we'll be like when we're complete. And God is in the process. And James says this whole business of trials is part of God's design to make us complete. It produces maturity, which com produces completeness and lacking in nothing. And then James goes on to talk about what I think 
we all lack the most is wisdom, <laughs> which is the ability to apply our faith to life. Wisdom is the ability to take God's truth and apply it to our lives so that we can live in the way that God uh, designs for us to live. And so, again, I think he's saying the same thing as Paul says. And, and not only that, but I think as we continue to get complete, there's even another kind of suffering uh, that uh, Peter talks about again. And uh, I would just read these couple of verses to you. First uh, Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice. Imagine that. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or some kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of Christ? There's another kind of suffering that comes from standing up uh, for the truth and from glorifying God. And so in all of this, I would just say by way of summary that uh, strength comes from pressure. If you think about it, uh, if you want to develop physical strength, what do you do? You go to the gym and you start lifting weights. Pressure, right? And the pressure grows your muscles. If you want to develop mental strength, what do you do? You begin to study. You begin to read. You begin to press your mind until you understand and you develop a kind of uh, mental strength by concentration. If you wanted to develop emotional strength, what do you do? Well, if you love people, you'll get into relationships uh, that will challenge your emotions. And you will have opportunity to persevere. And you will develop an emotional strength. If you wanted to develop spiritual strength, how would you do it? Spiritual strength comes in the same way. The pressure of our trials and our problems and our sufferings produces strength when we persevere and don't cop out. It changes our character. And when our character changes, it's overridden with hope that's based in the love that God has for us and the confidence we have that even in the midst of our suffering, God is at work for our ultimate good. I read about this uh, man who was uh, watching a butterfly trying to escape from its cocoon in which it was born and in which it was trapped. And the man thought uh, he would help the butterfly, and so he took a very sharp exacto knife and cut the cocoon so that the butterfly could be free. And sure enough, the butterfly came out, it was free, it flapped its wings like crazy for a couple of seconds, and then it dropped dead on the ground. Because God intended that little creature to find life and to find maturity in striving. And when the striving was taken away, it weakened, and sadly, it died. God means our suffering for good. And we can actually get to the place where we know it and recognize it and actually rejoice in what God is doing in our lives through the trials and the sufferings that he allows to come our way. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
I just think here in America we need to be able to understand what you're saying here. I thank you, Father, that you have revealed that it's not a strange thing when suffering happens in our life. I think sometimes we've been so overdosed with the thought that once we're Christians, there won't be any trouble. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand that it's through the trials, it's through the hard times that our character develops and that the hope of Christ can develop in us and that uh, as a result of that, as the world sees us, they will be drawn to the strength that you produce in us when we persevere. And I thank you, Father, for your help in enabling us to persevere, that by your spirit we can do the right thing and not cop out, and that when we do, Father, you change us, and we are increasingly set free by the strength that you build within us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, make these things so real to us that we could actually get to the point where when the trials come our way, even though we don't rejoice in the trial, nobody's excited about the suffering, but on a deeper level, we know that you're at work making us complete, making us ready to live in heaven in your eternity. And Father, may we rejoice over that knowledge. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Can I ask our